This is a podcast about The Green Pastures. The Green Pastures was a play written by Mark Connolly and uh, first uh, produced in 1930. It was based on a play by Rourke Bradford, a transplanted Tennessean journalist in New Orleans, who had written a book called Old... uh, Man, Adam, and his chillin', and it was a an attempt to put the uh, stories of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, into African American um, um, Negro, the world of the Negro spiritual, and it was uh, an immediately successful attempt. The book, which was then followed by Mark Connolly's very deft and creative adaptation of Rourke's uh, idea of putting the Bible story into African American context in the South as they saw it, and it was then written up and produced on Broadway. In 1936, this phenomenally successful play, which also won a Pulitzer Prize and was regarded by many critics as one of the great American plays of the first half of the 20th century, uh, almost on a par with the slightly later Our Town, This uh, play was uh, turned into a Hollywood movie in 1936, and it was entirely scripted by uh, the same, the playwright from his play, uh, uh, Mark Connolly, and was directed by Mark Connolly with one other man. And uh, with the Hall Johnson uh, uh, choir uh, performing the spirituals of the play, the movie of 1936 is a very faithful interpretation of the play. Now, I want to talk about the pastures because it is a profound meditation on the nature of God. Now, this um, uh, play was produced before the, uh, written before the, conceived before the civil rights struggle, and uh, it has been uh, harshly cashiered uh, since really the 1960s, and for some people earlier than that, uh, because of its uh, supposed uh, racial stereotyping. It depicts heaven as kind of a a gigantic African-American fish fry uh, with watermelons and uh, gamblers and uh, all sorts of... um, uh, pictures of uh, of uh, African American life, and uh, many people regard it as a an exercise in racial stereotyping. Even though there's not a single white individual in the entire play, it is an all black cast, and it exists in a world uh, in which white people simply do not exist and never have existed, and uh, apparently never will exist. It is a, a complete uh, self enclosed uh, religious parabolic fable of African American Christianity in a dramatic form. But it has nonetheless come in for very strong judgments, and I'm not in a position to arbitrate those. I have no desire to defend <clears throat> the uh, play from the accusation of racial stereotyping. I can't, I'm not really able to, to, uh, to, to, to get into that in a way that has any kind of credibility. Um, but I would say this, that uh, when you uh, get focused in judging a work from another era uh, entirely in terms of, uh, uh, of, of identity politics or how it speaks to you today, given where people are today, uh, even though this may be well and good and right and righteous and true, you can end up not letting other aspects of the work speak to you. I was watching uh, the old uh, Max Reinhardt um, Hollywood production from what, about 1934 or 35 of uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream the other day, and there it was right in front of me, that the Shakespearean magic of the play is almost destroyed by the 
a low-life uh, comic, supposed Elizabethan comic troupe in the last act of A Midsummer Night's Dream performing Pyramus and Thisbe with characters like Bottom and Snout and Joe E. Brown and Jimmy Cagney and others. And, and you say to yourself, the, the miraculous, lyrical beauty of the, uh, of the Midsummer Night's Dream in the woods is uh, just uh, so vitiated by Shakespeare's attempt to reach some kind of audience he was trying to reach, which is not ours. But do we therefore say that A Midsummer Night's Dream is terrible because it has one sort of appalling vide in the middle of it? That, I don't think, would, would, would give us the advantage of, of the other aspects of the work that are, are, are so fine. And so um, with the question of the um, political correctness laid simply to one side, if you wish to take up that question, then you will not be interested in uh, the green pastures. But what uh, is uh, coming out of the green pastures? is a, an answer to a theological question that I've had all my life. That's what I want to talk about. Why it is when uh, you watch The Green Pastures, and this has not yet failed in my experience of being with others as they watched it, showing it to others, and uh, uh, certainly watching it myself. I've seen the movie four times now and uh, have studied the book. I have the play in front of me, in a, uh, uh, an edition, uh, the 15th large edition of the Pulitzer Prize winning play, and it's signed by the author, December 13th, 1933, in New York. And uh, uh, Mark Connolly's play is emblazoned on my um, thinking at this point because... Uh, taking, as I said, the cultural context matters aside, other things about the play are so strong uh, that it, it, it requires uh, some attention today. And we, we miss, uh, in the same way that, that, uh, that, that the world, I, in my view, uh, often misses the positive contribution today that Christian notions of mercy and absolution and forgiveness and suffering and... Uh, uh, transformation and uh, the question of the wills being bound as opposed to being culpable in every respect for addicted behavior and AA and African-American spirituality. These, there are many tremendous contributions that Christianity can make, does make, and could continue to make, even in the public sphere. But these are basically, again, drummed out of the conversation, partly because the Christian church has itself made its own bed and uh, um, really uh, tainted and damaged its witness through its own particular pharisaical misunderstanding understanding of its fundamental core values, but uh, whoever's caused it, uh, the great contribution that uh, the uh, work and the mighty philosophy of the green pastures makes is prevented today from having its proper effect. And I feel very badly about that because this, this work, when you see it, if you're a person of religious sensibility or if you're a person simply who's arrested by the uh, problem of uh, of the world's uh, disarray and suffering and uh, uh, continuing repetitious slide into never-failing uh, trouble and strife. Uh, this play is directly relating um, through a very unusual mediated context of an African-American preacher in the 1920s. This play is speaking to the human drama. Now, what it consists of is the creation of the world. First, you start in heaven and God, who is played in the movie by Rex Ingram, and uh, 
He also plays Adam and he plays Hezrael. He has three roles, and I'll get to that in just a moment. God creates the world, and uh, then he, uh, Adam, uh, uh, we have not the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Uh, very interesting. That is left out. Original sin is left out. Uh, what is seen, however, is the uh, Cain's killing of Abel. Uh, God um, um, becomes terribly angry with his creation. He is speaking in uh, in gospel talk, um, Old Man River, you know, he's speaking in the talk of what is uh, believed to be the African-American accent. And uh, remember, this is all portrayed by African-American actors. There's not a white face in the entire large Hollywood production, nor in the uh, famous Broadway production and the Traveling Company, which made this play, as Irvin S. Cobb said once, the most uh, highly performed play in America, the most frequently performed play, like Our Town was until fairly recently, and uh, Green Pass was until the the 50s but it was actually done uh, twice for television in addition to the movie now um god creates the earth he um comes down and has an extraordinary encounter with noah who's played by eddie anderson who later became famous as rochester in the jack benny show and noah is kind of a has-been hapless and really um slightly iffy uh preacher who has sort of given up trying to uh, redeem the kind of cannery row on which he lives where everyone's kind of a low life and uh, has really given up uh, to lives of sordid um, murder and uh, uh, nihilistic uh, have fun vanity fair and uh, uh, God uh, comes and visits on a Sunday afternoon uh, he visits Noah and there's a very famous uh, funny scene about liquor how much liquor is Noah allowed to take it but it suddenly turns as always happens in the green pastures it, it happens several times from farce it turns deadly serious and yet religious that's that's what makes it so sort of striking. And that may be the cause, in fact, why it's not uh, performed today. It may not, in fact, entirely be its supposed political incorrectness, which I don't think it is uh, politically incorrect when you actually see it. Um, and and the African-American commentators I've read about it, they, they, uh, they tend to have a sense of humor about it today uh, and a certain sense of recognition, and they do at times make it uh, appear to be a, a, an affront. And again, that... I can't speak to that. I know that when I watch it as a as a person of of faith and and doubt and struggle, that's the key in which this particular harmonic uh, tone uh, comes to me. It comes in the theological tone. God visits Noah, and Noah suddenly across the dinner table recognizes the Lord. And uh, uh, the scene where Eddie Anderson realizes realizes who is his there, um, entertaining angels unawares, is very. All of a sudden, you. You cry. You find yourself moved. And then he creates the ark, and we have the whole scene done in a farcical, funny, but ultimately deadly serious way, and God destroys the earth, but saves Noah, Eddie Anderson, and his family, and the two-by-two creation. Now, uh, we then uh, switch to the story of Moses, uh, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who all wear angel's wings. These are all African-American men dressed uh, in the Sunday school pageant angel wings, which are deliberate and funny and delightful, and they come to God in his rather uh, sort of simple, uh, overly busy office where God is trying to uh, to talk about one sparrow in one breath and 100,000 people over here he's trying to help out. And uh, 
uh, he uh, admits that he has a shine, he has a liking for the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to help them out. And he goes down and he makes Moses and Aaron into the um, saviors of Israel, and then follows a hilarious and very deep section when two uh, African-American shepherds uh, come to visit the Pharaoh, who at this time, it's an African-American lodge meeting, the royal order of universal magicians or whatever. And the Pharaoh is basically uh, a conjurer and loves conjurers. And uh, nobody uh, has his vote except good conjurers. And then we have the terrible um, words of the uh, actor who plays Pharaoh. I hate the Hebrews. I hate them. I want to kill them. How many we killed last night? And uh, he's played by Ernest Whitman, a marvelous actor who, uh, in my book, uh, has a sanctity because Ernest Whitman plays Uncle Plez, the r- remarkably benign and holy uh, black um, patriarch in John Ford's uh, 1951 uh, film, The Sun Shines Bright, or is it 52? But uh, you'll see Ernest Whitman again at a high point of John Ford's career. But Ernest Whitman plays a, 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 a brutal Idi Amin uh, also able to go into humor, uh, Pharaoh, who is faced down by the far greater conjurers, uh, Moses and Aaron, and uh, all the firstborn are killed as the last trick, reluctantly done by uh, the character of Moses. And uh, uh, the um, children of Israel are let go, which follows a very beautiful scene of them all going uh, across the Jordan. And uh, um, Moses, who's dying, now a very old man, is sitting there and he's ready to go. And all the families, the, a, a black hand, an old person's hand, a young person's hand, a baby's hand, a young woman's hand, a, a young man's hand, uh, every conceit, they all comfort him and, and touch his shoulder as they go forward and he dies. And then Delord, again played by Rex Ingram in the garb of, a, of an African-American preacher, uh, blesses uh, uh, Moses and says, well, what you're going to see now is a, a million times better than the land of Canaan. Uh, you know what theologians call the infinite qualitative distinction? is uh, stated with unparalleled uh, colloquialism and accuracy and uh, uh, perfect uh, clarity by the Lord as he takes uh, Moses up to the eternal Canaan. And uh, then we have a very uh, heart-wrenching scene in uh, uh, Belshazzar's feast scene. The Babylonian king is confronted uh, in a, this time it's a so-called New Orleans country club, uh, I mean, no, a New Orleans uh, uh, cabaret, black uh, bar and uh, nightclub and um, the girls are getting up and jitterbugging and the, um, the, uh, the the king of Babylon is a very disreputable fella in an awful suit with girlfriends on every side, and he's just got a wry, malicious, evil grin. And uh, uh, in walks sort of by mistake a Hebrew preacher, but in this case just another preacher like an African-American preacher, and he uh, calls down the wrath of God on the uh, king of Babylon, and he's struck, he's shocked. And uh, then the real high priest of the Hebrews, who's now kind of accommodated himself and looks like the Pope, he comes in with all these fancy, ridiculous robes, and he declares that he is the high priest, and he's in cahoots with the king of Babylon. And there we have the sort of church and state Constantinian moment of green pastors. And in one deft coup de théâtre, the funny, uh, ridiculous, uh, large uh, uh, high priest who 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 says, "Well, now, uh, King, we 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 become real broad-minded. Now we, we're broad-minded. He's a." He's He's become broad-minded, and he's in an alliance with the absolutely unscrupulous king of Babylon. And uh, uh, then um, 
suddenly in the middle of the great party and the jazz dancing and the sort of Duke Ellington band, but very hot jazz over in the corner. Uh, there's a peal of uh, thunder and uh, the Lord's voice comes and he's, I'm sick of you people. I've had it with you people. This is it. I'm never going to talk to you again. And God retreats from the world. Now we come to the climax. Um, after these long and but they're both funny and they're very moving and you are constantly alternating between laughter not laughter at this is not laughter at the characters it's laughter with the characters because God is very funny he's always quipping and saying profound things that are hilariously true and everybody else is sort of trying to, to casuistically get out from under what he says or put themselves in a special category and um, that is a, a very um, a, a painful and funny and amusing <clears throat> and then uh, comes down to the moment of judgment, wrath, penitence not sought and, uh, and uh, catastrophe and this happens again and again and again and the point of the playwright is to take this picture of the Bible of God's inability to sort of finally do for humanity what humanity requires and needs and humanity is constantly messing up of its own fault you might say of its own deliberate fault so what's going to happen? And here in scene six of The Green Pastures, on page 157, God is, uh, the Lord is uh, being, uh, he's with Gabriel, who's a marvelous fellow named Ernest Polk. Gabriel is fabulous. He's sort of the straight man to the Lord's kind of infinite jest. And um, the the Lord is is, uh, very um, uh, puzzled. This is, this is the transition between the God, the judgment that is consistently visited upon his people and upon the world, and the other um, dimension, the ultimately primary dimension of mercy. And in this, um, God, is, uh, God is puzzled. He keeps hearing a voice. He says, uh, Dave's getting ready to take Jerusalem down there. That was my big fine city. Dis Hezdrael, he's just one of the defenders. He's just talking in such a way that I got to listen. His name is Hezdrael. Now here, Mark Connolly, the playwright, introduces an extra-canonical character that was entirely of his own invention. He said it was great soul-searching, and this is the linchpin of the whole of the whole power, and in a sense, the linchpin of, of the whole Bible, even if Green Pastures had never been um, written. A character is hearing, God is hearing a character that we haven't met, and he doesn't want to hear him. He says, I ain't coming down. Suddenly and passionately, says the stage direction, almost wildly, God, I ain't coming down. You hear me? I ain't coming down. He looks at Gabriel. I, I hate to see you feeling this way, Lord. That's all right, says God. Even being God ain't a bed of roses. Oh, I hear you. I know you're fighting bravely, but I ain't coming down. Why don't you leave me alone? You know you ain't talking to me. Is you talking to me? I can't stand your talking that way. I can only hear part of what you're saying, and it puzzles me. Don't you know you can't puzzle God? Directions, a pause, then tenderly. Do you want me to come down there very much? You know I said I wouldn't come down. Fiercely. Why don't he answer me a little? Listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. I ain't going to promise you anything, and I ain't going to do nothing to help you. I'm just feeling a little low. And I'm only coming down to make myself feel a little better. That's all. 
Well, what's happening is someone named Hezriel is speaking and praying, as we find out. He's speaking to a part of God that God doesn't realize he has. Hezriel on earth is evoking in God a part of God that God has, as it were, gotten out of touch with because of his continual necessity of having to judge earth kind. Now, um, we are here, of course, so if you're a Christian listener or a theologically sort of um, student listener, y'all, all sorts of bells will be going off because how can God be reminded of something that he already is by a man, by his creation? Well, this is Mark Connolly's The Green Pastures attempt to understand how did we get from the God of of, of, of necessary justice and wrath and punishment to a God of mercy and forgiveness. How is such a thing possible? Theologically speaking, uh, we are going to have what is sometimes called in theology a patripassionist answer. That is, God has feelings. Patra, for God the Father, passion, feelings. God can be impacted by the uh, sufferings of... Uh, he can feel the pain of his pain-feeling creation. And this is what rouses him from his kind of unheeding, unhearing inertia, you might say, to relate to human people once again. And here's the key scene. Hezriel is leading a... Hezriel, by the way, is played by the same actor who played Adam. And in the movie, this is again a coup de théâtre, in the movie, Hezriel and Adam are both played by Rex Ingram, who is the actor who plays Delord. And so in the scenes with Hezriel, they use a split screen. Hezriel, which is Rex Ingram, the actor, a young, vigorous man, dressed for combat in ancient times, and Delord, Rex Ingram, dressed and costumed and made up as an ancient um, Mr. Duchet, a pre not Mr. Duchet, an old preacher in the hills. And these two people face each other, but uh, Hezriel is in the image and likeness of the Lord, as is Adam in his image and likeness. And uh, Hezrael is now alone, and he has been just informed that an attack will come the tomorrow morning in which he expects, without any question, all of his men and himself to be killed defending, uh, um, defending um, Jerusalem. God. Hello, Hezrael, Adam. Hezreel, who is you? God. Me, I'm just an old preacher from back in the hills. What you doing here? I heard you boys was fighting. I just wanted to see how it was going. Well, it ain't going so well. They got you scared, huh? Look here, who is you, a spy in my brain? You see here, God is, God is an unseen God. He is, he is speaking to Hezreel. But he is, um, and he's visualized, of course, in the parable of the green pastures. But he is, we know that he's a spy in my brain, because that's what, that's what Hezriel can, uh, Hezriel understands him as a voice speaking the way God is always seen to speak, the still small voice. Then God says, can't you see as one of you people? Listen, preacher, we ain't scared. We're going to be killed, but we ain't scared. I was glad to hear that. Can I ask you a question, Hezriel? What is it? How is it you is so brave? Because we got faith, that's why. Faith, says God, in who? 
Hezreel, in our dear Lord God. But God say he abandoned everyone down here. Hezreel, who say dat? Who dare say dat of the Lord God of Hosea? Now here Connolly artfully introduces the great prophet of grace, Hosea, in the Old Testament. God, the God of Hosea? You heard me. Look here, you is a spy in my brain. God, no, I ain't, Hezreel. I'm just puzzled. You ought to know that. How come you so puzzled about the God of Hosea? God, I don't know. Maybe I just don't hear things. You see, I live way back in the hills. What you want to find out? God, ain't the God of Hosea the same Jehovah that was the God of Moses? Hezreel, contemptuously. No, that old God? We have the God that Hosea preached to us. He's the one God. Who's he? Hezreel, reverently, the God of mercy. God. Hezreel, don't you think they must be the same God? I don't know. I ain't bothered to think much about it. Maybe they is. Maybe our God is the same old God. I guess we just got tired of his appearance that old way. What you mean, Hezreel? Hezreel. Oh, that old God that walked the earth in the shape of a man. I guess he lived with man so much that all he seen was the sins in man. That's what made him the God of wrath and vengeance. Cause he made Hosea. And Hosea never would have found what mercy was unless there was a little of it in God, too. Anyway, he ain't a fearsome God no more. Hosea showed us that. Well, I mean, are you kidding? What is going on here? Um, what he's really saying is that the anthropomorphic God was so tarred with the anthropomorphos, the, the form of man that he himself, I mean, even as I see, speak this, I almost get physically uh, ill uh, out of uh, powerful vibes uh, 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 all over me. In other words, the God who was the anthropomorphic God was so uh, caught up with the thing that he had created that he began uh, almost... Uh, not seeing anything beyond that. And he lived with man so much, says Hezreel, that that's all he's seen was the sins in man. But then he says, but Hosea, says Hezreel, never would have found what mercy was unless there was a little bit of it in God too. In other words, Hezreel is about to show to the Lord that the Lord has been out of touch with a part of himself. So humanity is showing God a little of himself so that God can then come up with a solution. God, I haven't finished yet though. How do you suppose Hosea found that mercy? Hezreel, the only way he could find it, the only way I found it, the only way anyone can find it. How's that? Through suffering. Well, um, at the uh, end of this conversation, God leaves Hezreel and says, uh, I'm going. Want me to take any message? Tell the people in the hills, says Hestriel, there ain't nobody like the Lord God of Hosea. God, I will. If they kill you tomorrow, I'll bet that God of Hosea will be waiting for you. I know he will. God, quietly, thank you, Hestriel. For what? For telling me so much. You see, I've been so far away, I guess I was just way behind the times. Well, uh, at that point, God has been so far away 
this is the God of the philosophers, the God of the watchmaker, that he's been, in fact, behind the times. He's not caught up with what's really going on in the, um, in the New Testament, as it turns out, in the New. That's why the same actor who plays Adam plays Hezrael, the man of the God of mercy. And uh, the Lord is now going to go back to heaven. And uh, this is, uh, gosh, I don't know what you make of this, and you you may have all sorts of thoughts about it. But I'll just uh, conclude uh, with the very last uh, last um, uh, scene, scene number eight of the of this act. Gabriel, God is in the middle of heaven and everybody in the original beginning of the play, all the angels are around him and everybody's there and he's come back to heaven. And Gabriel says, you look a little pensive, Lord. You look pensive, Lord. You've been sitting here looking this way an awful long time. Is it something serious, Lord? Very serious, Gabriel. Now that's one of the few times in my experience of a, of a work of this kind where the word very serious really means it. This is very serious. This is something that relates to all people. And this is where, again, I feel so warmly and even, I hate to use the word passionately, it's a cliche, but I feel very engagedly that that the world today, especially in our country, is missing uh, an element of the conversation that would benefit the conversation in the public as well as the private sphere because uh, we're not able to look at an insight like this and say, well, this might possibly have something to say to other things, not just, as it were, a compartmentalized sense of private religion. Is it something serious, Lord? Very serious, Gabriel. What about, Lord? About something the boy told me. Something about Hosea and himself. How they found something. What, Lord? Mercy. Through suffering, he said. Yes, Lord. God. I'm trying to find it, too. It's awfully important. It's awfully important to all the people on my earth. Did he mean that even God must suffer? Now the rubric, we're at the end. God continues to look out over the audience for a moment, and then a look of surprise comes into his face. He sighs. In the distance, a voice cries. The voice. Oh, look at him. Oh, look, they going to make him carry it up that high hill. They going to nail him to it. Oh, that's a terrible burden for one man to carry. Now, this is the concluding stage direction. God rises and murmurs, yes, as if in recognition. The heavenly beings have been watching him closely, and now, seeing him smile gently, draw back, relieved. All the angels burst into hallelujah, King Jesus. God continues to smile as the lights fade away and the singing becomes fortissimo. Now, look, I'm going to end this. You can say, oh, this sounds like uh, Jürgen Moltmann patropassionism or patropassionism, which we have in certain process theologians today. Can God really be impacted by humans? Or, or what about the Karl Barth God who makes the, you know, who is completely on a different sphere? Don't we need him? Well, you can say all you want about that, but this is very moving. This is an attempt to understand a, a human attempt by an American artist in 1930 uh, who didn't really do anything else of this character, of this degree of insight of certainly success uh, throughout his long career 
he saw into the fact that one solution is to understand that God is um, himself um, somewhat ambiguous and divided, and yet ultimately the final word is not wrath and judgment, but the final word with which God is smiling at the end is mercy. That is the final word. And so you can call it patripassionism, you can call it nothing at all, you can call it even when one first saw it, uh, someone I know who saw it um, said, well, it sounds adoptionist to me, and he's a classical Christian word that sort of a man has, has uh, not God didn't decide to send his son, but they look out and they see a man carrying the great burden as if God is sort of recognizing in the death and uh, the crucifixion of Christ, the mercy that is part of himself as if God is recognizing sort of a la John Milton, supposedly in book four of Paradise Lost. Well, that all would be a lot of words. When you hear these words, are you not affected? Are you not moved by a picture? of God who is actively listening and attending to his creation who are suffering terribly and who in fact actually fight a very royal fight uh, people who say that there's no strong active victorious uh, warlike uh, character in the um, uh, people as depicted in the green pastures miss the great scene of all of Hezrael and his horde pouring out of the temple with swords drawn to fight their final battle with tremendous guts and preemptive attack but you you have to see it. It's there. But uh, the great point is that God has discovered the secret of what humanity needs to be courageous, to be unbowed, to be hopeful, and to actually exist without uh, going completely to absolute um, introspective uh, caughtness in a combination of sort of uh, vile degeneracy and uh, the use of people and all the things we saw earlier with Noah and then we saw in Pharaoh's bestial court with its massacres of the Hebrews and uh, its cruelty, uh, and then with the um, king of Babylon, the kind of coy, uh, deeply cynical uh, connection of supposed uh, uh, um, ecclesiastical and other institutions with the reigning government, which only acts for money and profit and glitter and uh, kills all those who try to bring it back to a humane sense of philanthropy and altruism and generosity of heart and love in any broader, narrow sense. And so this uh, denouement is beyond good and beyond powerful and uh, must be engaged with if you are a living person, sorrowing and stuck, and certainly if you are a person who considers yourself to be someone who is trying to uh, justify the uh, ways of God uh, to man or the ways of man to his fellow man. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the Green Pastures, and I hope you'll be um, you'll be. Uh, uh, desirous of going out to uh, you can see it on Martin Luther King Day on the Turner Classic Movie Channel uh, sometimes it's shown very very early in the morning on a Sunday and you can certainly Netflix it and uh, it's available very easily uh, in the beautiful video transfer that I'm holding in my hand. Thank you so much and God bless.